It is so good to see each of you here this morning, especially those of you who are visiting with us. It's always a, a great honor to have you here with us and hope that you will take just a moment afterwards to, to allow us to uh, catch up and get to know you better after services are over. But we want to take this time right now to specifically open up God's Word together and spend some time learning from, from His truth. Now this afternoon... I uh, hope to see you all, all back here because we're going to spend some time looking at what God deserves versus what He oftentimes receives. And I'm, I'm excited to, to take some time to look at that topic. And for those of you that are visiting with us, we meet again at, at 2.30 and you are very much welcome to be back here with us. But this morning what we want to do is we want to dig into an Old Testament book that probably doesn't get much attention. The book of Hosea. I'll give you just a moment to turn yourself, your Bibles over there to the book of Hosea. We have been uh, slowly going through the minor prophets. Um, we we did, went out of order. We spoke about Amos and we spoke about Joel um, uh, a month ago. And my hope is to once a month try to dig into one of these minor prophets and just find out what is this book all about? Because we tend to look over these because they, they seem tricky. They seem hard to understand. Uh, and so for that reason, we say, well, maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll read that some other time. And then these books just sit gathering dust in our, in our Bibles. The pages don't have the stains from our fingers as we rip through them and read them over and over again. And that's sad because these books are very, very profitable to us. They, um, they describe a time in, in man's history when God had given great effort and, and great um, blessings to mankind, and mankind had not done much with that. In fact, they had rebelled against God, they had turned away from Him, and they were about to incur a judgment. There was a judgment day coming in this time. They didn't know when it was going to happen, but they were being told about this. They were being told about what God had done and how they were failing to have any sort of concern for that. And I think just starting right there, we can see that this is something that can be applicable to our day today. So the book of Hosea, I want to get into it this morning. It is a series of poems. A series of poems that were spoken by Hosea to the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's going to refer to them, not by their name of Israel, but typically he's going to refer to them as Ephraim or as Jacob. Hearkening back to the, the, the man in which they get their namesake from, uh, the Jacob of Jacob and Esau, the son of Isaac. So he hearkens back to that by calling that, and we don't really know a whole lot about who he is. Hosea is kind of a mysterious figure. Some have suggested he's a priest because in the book of Hosea he does seem to care an awful lot about priestly things. But really we don't know much about him. Even his father who's mentioned uh, Biri in verse 1, we don't really know a whole lot about him. He's a person that's kind of anonymous to us. But what he did do is he came and he spoke to Israel at a time when Amos had been speaking to Israel as well. But he approaches the message that is very similar, um, very similar message, but he approaches it very differently. If you remember our reading through Amos, Amos comes hard on Israel. He comes and he talks about all the terrible things they've done. Judgment is coming. Condemnation is coming. In fact, the whole book of Amos is devoted to that, save the last maybe five verses where he says, oh yeah, there will be some hope. But Amos is very, very hard in his approach. Hosea, uh, <clears throat> Hosea approaches it quite differently. He relies on teaching through example. 
scattering His message of, of wrath and condemnation with salvation and hope. And He's trying to paint a picture for these people about who God is. He wants them to remember who God is, who you are as children of Israel, and what that has had, what you have done, and how that has had an effect in your lives. It's been said that it is very similar in comparison to the way John the Baptist taught versus the way that Jesus taught. In fact, Jesus' name is a, a derivation of the name Hosea, which is a name that says Yahweh is salvation. Um, whenever we get into the book, one thing that we're going to see is that that is Hosea's concern. His concern seems to be with salvation and reminding people where salvation comes from. And that's going to be something that we see as well in the book is that they had lost their sense of what is truly important in their lives and where their minds needed to be focused. This is probably because of the time in which he speaks and what's going on in Israel. He speaks during the reign of Jeroboam II. This is about 200 years after the big split. You'll remember the first the, the split of Israel and, and uh, Judah going into separate kingdoms. Ten to the north, two to the south, led by Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Jeroboam uh, II is, is king now in, in uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And things are going rather well for them politically, financially. They're in a good place. Um, and, and so Hosea brings this message to them and he divides it into three parts. And that's kind of how I want to look at it today. I want to just break it down into its three sections because he's going to use these three sections to help them to wrap their minds around what they have done and how that's going to have an effect on them. The first one is probably the most well-known, the well-known section of the book. And I just want to read the first chapter together. But the first section is actually chapters 1, 2, and 3 combined. But just read with me, if you will, chapter 1. Uh, and we'll just start in verse 2. It says, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and bring it into the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name lo Rohamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away, yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, but by horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned lo Rohamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. We can see right away in the first chapter that there's a lot going on. He's got some very hard things to say to them, but he even ends chapter 1 with a little bit of this message of hope. So we're going to see that continually through the book. I want to get into what's happening here in this first section, though. And what we see is a broken marriage. Again, this is probably one of the most popular and, and well-known parts 
of the book of Hosea, and that is the part that outlines the marriage of Hosea to Gomer. Hosea marries this, this wife of harlotry, um, and it's very unlikely uh, that, that she was a harlot when they were married. Um, because God is painting, He's using her as an analogy to Israel, which started out faithful to God. But she either comes from a background or certainly enters into very soon a life of unfaithfulness. Um, and in fact, she does so in such a way that it's not just that she fools around. She becomes enslaved to this lifestyle. She becomes literally indebted to this lifestyle uh, and, and is going to have to be bought and purchased back out of that. Um, as the story continues and, and the children enter into the picture, we see this striking parallel that's being taken place between the family and the life of Gomer and Hosea and the family and the life of Israel and God. The three children. The first one named Jezreel. He says, I'm going to avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. Jehu. And, and Jeroboam II is a descendant. This is his great-grandfather. Jehu is, a, is the man who took the throne after King Ahab. And if you remember King Ahab, he's one of the most wicked kings that Israel ever has. He does some of the most terrible things along with his wife Jezebel. And, and they do terrible harm to the country in, for, in, in, in the ways of instilling idolatry and worshiping false gods. He's just a wicked, wicked, evil king. And God says, judgment is coming on you, Ahab. And he brings it through Jeroboam. Uh, actually, I should say through Jehu, Jeroboam's uh, great-grandfather. He brings it through Jehu. If you go back to, um, if you look in the, the, the account of, of 2 Kings, you have this picture where all of Ahab's children are brought out to the valley of, of Jezreel. And 70 of them in total are beheaded. And their heads are piled in two, big, in two big piles. And it is spoken of there, this was done by the mouth of the prophet Elijah. This was God's Word. This had to happen because God pronounced this condemnation, this judgment on Ahab because of his great evil. And God is not saying that you're going to be punished because you did that, because this is what I commanded to, to have done. This is how I orchestrated this. He's not saying that's why you're wrong. He's saying you're just as bad. You're just as evil as Ahab. You have not learned from the lessons. You didn't go through this and, and act as a weapon of, of my judgment and then somehow start doing what was right. You continued where he left off and you multiplied sin and transgression amongst the, amongst the nation of Israel. And because of that, I'm going to bring the condemnation that fell upon Ahab by the hands of Jehu onto the nation of Israel once again. So he starts off with this really hard picture saying, guess what? Something terrible is coming. And then he says, with the birth of his daughter, he says, let me talk to you just for a moment about your daughter, Lo-Rahamah. Her name is going to mean no mercy. And he's revealing to them there, yes, this terrible thing is coming, and guess what? You're not going to escape from it. I'm not going to have mercy. I'm not going to show compassion. I'm not going to forget what you have done because your wickedness is so great. And in fact, he, he wraps all that up with the third child, Lo-Ami, literally means you're not my people. That is how far 
Israel has walked away from God. The people that He brought up out of Egypt have turned so far away and so hard to the world around them, to the Canaanite gods, to the political powers that surrounded them. This is our trust. This is our hope. This is what we want to be. And He's saying, if that's what you want to be, that's how I'll treat you. If you don't want to be My people, then you're not My people. And there will be no mercy. And there will be condemnation that is coming upon you. He's telling the children of Israel here, He's saying, I've seen you. You did not somehow hide yourself from Me. And I'm going to come against you in vengeance and you're not going to receive My mercy. And during all this time, as all of this is going on, and you read through the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3 as he's saying these things, Gomer is entering into this unfaithful stage of hers. And, and, and she's not going to be faithful to, to Hosea. She's out committing acts of harlotry. And it comes to a point where she is actually a slave now. She has gotten so involved with this that she belongs. She is married to Hosea, but she belongs to another because of the acts of unfaithfulness that she has committed. She is, is indebted to somebody else. And in chapter 3, the, the, the whole of chapter 3 is this beautiful section where God says, go get Gomer. Hosea has every right under the Mosaical law to say, I'm not married to her anymore. She has been unfaithful to me. I'm going to write her a certificate of divorce. I'm going to put her away. God says, go get Gilmer. Pay off her debts. Take her back. Despite what she's done. And the picture that is being painted here is a picture of a broken and repaired marriage. And even the picture of the children here. They are all analogous to Israel's relationship with God. He has been the faithful husband of Israel. He rescued them out of slavery. They were not a people. He made them into a people. You remember in Genesis, 70 people go into Egypt. Millions come out. He took this little group of nobodies and made them into a great nation and He brought them to Mount Sinai and He said, you're going to enter into a covenant with Me. And that what that covenant means to them is you're going to be faithful to me. That's how he has become the husband of Israel. He is the one that's in charge with shepherding them. He is the one which is in charge with taking care of them, providing protection for them, and bringing them into this promised land. And they need to submit to him. And they need to follow him. He has been the faithful husband, but they have repeatedly repeatedly used the great abundance that He gave them, the great blessings that He provided them to fill their hearts with greed, to turn their hearts away from concern for others. Only the things that they desired, only the things that seemed important to them, they focused on. And they even used the blessings of this promised land that He had brought them into to sacrifice to other gods. And that's what He's highlighting in these, in these first chapters. Look at what you've done. You've become just like Gomer. You've become just like a woman who, who enters into a marriage but is unfaithful so much so that she becomes slave to somebody else. And he's faced with the decision. I can be righteous and completely divorce myself from this family. This people that I have, I have given them the covenant and in the covenant it very clearly states if you obey me, if you, if you follow me, you will be blessed. But if you rebel against me, you will be cursed and cut off from the land. He says, I can be, I can be completely righteous in saying, you know what? 
You have rebelled and I'm done with you. Or, or I can reach out and I can pursue them. And that's what we see God choosing to, to do. To pursue the unfaithful family of Israel. To reach out and redeem them and renew them in his lives. And he's going to say later, I'm going to choose the latter of this question, but the reason that he wants them, or the question he wants them to ask is why? Why would you ever choose, after what we have done, why would you ever choose to go out and try to grab us and bring us back, to pursue us? Why wouldn't you just let us leave? Why wouldn't you just let us run away? Obviously, we didn't love you. Why wouldn't you just let us go? And what he's going to reveal to us is it's my character. It is the character of God. His love, His compassion, His faithfulness, all of them are on display in the poetry of Hosea regarding Hosea and his wife, Gomer. He's showing us who God is. And what does that mean immediately for Israel? It doesn't mean things are going to be okay. It doesn't mean, you know, Gomer eventually, Hosea goes and he buys her back and, and everything's hunky-dory. That's not what's going to happen with Israel. First, first Israel has to become enslaved. That's what we're seeing. There's going to be immediate consequences for Israel. They are coming, and they are coming soon through the form of Assyrian captivity. But again, I want you to notice how chapter 3 ended in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, Afterward, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. There is a time coming, God is saying, through Hosea at this, at, at this period in Israelite history. There's a time coming when you're going to be reunited. Judgment's coming right now. Condemnation is coming right now because of what you have done. But there's a time coming when you will be reunited, not just as Israel of the north. You're going to come back and you're just going to go back into your land. You've got, you got another try at this. He says you're coming back as Israel, the kingdom that served God. He specifically says you're going to come back to serve David. That's not split. That's there in the time of the United Kingdom. He says you're coming back to be unified under one king that is going to be this, this great king that's going to be able to do this, to unify the people and bless them and bless the people of the world. This is very clearly a picture of Christ. He's saying there's going to be a time when all of this that's happening to you, and it's going to spread you out, and you're going to feel like we've been completely rejected by God, and there's no hope for us. There's going to be a time when the hope comes back. And it's going to be in this messianic promise. The remainder of the book now is going to look and explore what the first three chapters just established. It's really important to read these first three chapters whenever you're studying the book of Hosea and see that what God is doing is setting up the rest of this story in these first three chapters. He's going to look at the consequences of Israel's rebellion. And he's going to look at God's covenant love that is stronger than their sins. The remaining two sections will look like at accusations that are made against Israel. It'll look at warnings that are given to Israel. And both of these last two sections, section one and two, or two and three, I mean, are both going to end with this picture of hope. So I want to look at the two sections first, and then we'll come back to the hope at the end that Hosea repeatedly brings up. The second section is the cause and the effect 
of the sin of the children of Israel. Several times, Hosea is going to make this argument in here. What has caused their sin? What is it that has led them into such terrible rebellion against the Lord? It's a lack of knowledge. This is what has led Israel to where they are today. Chapter 4, verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. He's going to say again in verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I, will, I also will reject you from being priest for me. This idea of knowledge that he's talking about here, about them not knowing God, it's not that they didn't know about God. It's not that. They knew who God was. They, they remembered the stories of the God that brought them out of Egypt. They, they remembered the stories of the God that parted the Red Seas, who helped them come into the Promised Land. They remembered it because they still have emblems of it to remind them. There's still the temple that is, that is there. And while they don't worship God in Jerusalem, they worship Him in the northern kingdom of Israel still. And so they're still spending time worshiping Him. It, it's not that they didn't know who He was. They had an intellectual knowledge, but they didn't have relational knowledge. They didn't know God in a relationship sort of way. I'll give you a picture of that. My neighbors. I know who my neighbors are. I know the, the, the names of my neighbors. I know what several of them do for a living. I know what, what they, several of them enjoy. I know what some of their hobbies are. I know my neighbors pretty well but I don't know a single one of them the way that I know Holly. I don't know any of them the way that I have. I don't have the relationship with any of them the way that I have with my wife. The relationship that I have with Holly is so much more close. It's so much more intimate. I know her fears. I know her joys. I know the things that, that nobody else knows about her. I just know her so well. But I don't know my neighbors that way. It's because while I do have a relationship with them, I don't have the type of relationship that we're talking about here in Hosea chapter 4. When God says, you don't know me, He's not saying you don't... It's not that you haven't read and don't know, memorized all the facts. It's that you haven't allowed a knowledge of who I am or what I've done to move and change you. Because of this lack of knowledge, because they didn't know who God was enough that it transformed their lives, Hosea is saying, even your worship has become hypocritical. This, is, this deficit in your life is having great effects on you. You have broken the Ten Commandments. You've filled your world with social injustices. There's no love for the fellow man. Whenever you show up at the temple and you show up with your offering and you expect everything's going to be okay because here's my offering to God, here's my worship to the Lord but it's not okay. God sees what you're doing. And He's not pleased with it at all. And on top of all that, what they were doing was doing that, and then they would turn around and they would go to the, to the idols, and they would go to the Canaanite gods. They would set up temples to the Baal, and they would say, let's worship them as well. And their focus is not grounded in trust for who God is and the knowledge of what He has done that, that changes them. Their trust has been founded in what can we do to make us like the world around us. They were actively at this time pursuing people like the Assyrians. 
we're worried about what the other nations around us might do to us. So we want you guys to come partner with us so we can fight together to protect our nation. And we look at that, well, that seems like it's a logical thing to do for a nation to try to make make uh, friends with the people around them and, and political alliances and military alliances. And God is saying, the reason you're doing that is because you don't trust in me. Assyria didn't bring you in here. I did. Assyria didn't have anything to do with it. In fact, Assyria is going to be the one that's going to turn on you and conquer you. But that's what you want to do so much. When you came into the land, you looked around, you said, everybody else has a king. Why don't we have a king? Samuel, get on that and give us a king. And what did God say to Samuel? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They want to look like everybody else does. They want to be like the nations around them. And so they have repeatedly shown that we will be unfaithful to this covenant that, that we have made with you in which you brought us into your family to make us your people, your nation, because we're more focused on what everything in the world going, looking like the world around us. And they've become very, very skilled at doing that. So God's about to bring all of that crashing down on them. And, and this, this section ends and enters into this third section. And I did mention there's, good, there's hope at the end of section 2. When we look through chapters uh, 4 through, through about chapter 11, that's all of section 2. And there's hope there. We're going to come back to that. Chapter 11 is a beautiful chapter of hope. But I think it's important for us to see one more thing before we do that. In chapters 12 through 14, Hosea brings up one of the last poems that he's going to speak about them, and that is, you've always been this way, and you're always going to be this way. I want you to think about what he says in chapter 12 and verse 2. Just read verse 1 and 2. It says, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. Also, they make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried to Egypt. So he's talking about what Israel's doing right now. Verse 2, the Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his deeds. He will recompense him. He, will, he took his brother by the hill and the womb and in the strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angels and prevailed. He wept and sought favor with him. He found him in Bethel. And there he spoke to us, this, that is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So you, by the help of your God, return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. So he's calling them to turn away from what they're doing. But in doing that, he starts by saying, let me paint a picture for one of your ancestors. Do you remember Jacob? Do you remember Jacob, where you get your namesake from? Do you remember who he was? He was a deceitful, lying person. He's drawing them back to their history. He said, let me give you a history lesson as to, to who you are. Because you seem to get in your mindset that you're this righteous people of God and God will never do anything to you. So let me just remind you, who you where you came from. You didn't just pop up on the scene as, a, as some righteous creature. You came from a lying trickster. And then in chapter 13, verses 4 through 6, he says, Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. And you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. When they had pastures, they were filled. They were filled and their hearts was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. Oh yeah, just in case you, 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 know, you kind of put that whole thing about Jacob out of your mind. Do you remember when you came out of Egypt? Who brought you out? 
who gave you all the abundance. And when you received it, when you got everything that you wanted, what did you do? Did you thank me? Did you, did you worship me? Did you become faithful to me? No, you forgot me. You turned away from me. And in fact, in verses 9-11, through 11, he's going to bring up their desiring for a king. O Israel, you are destroyed for your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities and your judges to whom you said, Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger. I took him away in my wrath. Over and over again, Israel has chosen not to follow God. On what level? On every level. Before they were a people. As they were becoming a people. After they became a people. They have never... That's the point of what he's saying is this, this is not a new problem for you guys. And it's not going to change. And so God's finally had enough and He's going to do something about it. You have always been this unfaithful bunch of people and you may think that you're righteous and you may think that, 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 that you're doing everything to please God, but you've truly never been righteous. That's what Hosea is bringing up to them. Now sure, they've had their moments. They're, from this family has come men like David. Um, from this family has come men like Solomon. And they had moments in their lives where they were very, very righteous. A man after God's own heart. But even the most righteous among them showed to be unfaithful. Showed to look to their own desires over top of God's. And so we read these two sections reminding them of their history and we begin to get this picture that this is all hopeless. Why would God do anything with this people? Again, it takes us right back to where we started. Why? Why would He care about this family? Why would He care to keep a promise that He made to Abraham that pretty much has been fulfilled, save one little part? You know what? Pick somebody else new and fulfill that last part through them because this family is just shown that they are morally bankrupt. They are dysfunctional. And you can surely find somebody better than them. I want us to remember the beginning of the book. I told you, chapters 1 through and 3 set the tone for everything that we read. Gomer, or Hosea, go get Gomer. Redeem her. God is going to rescue His people and He is going to redeem them. And that's what the final two poems bring to us. Going back now to chapter 11, we're going to look at these two poems of hope in their entirety very quickly. The first one is a poem of the loving Father. It says in 11.1, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. So they called, they called them, <clears throat> excuse me, as they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in the cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsel. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, 
the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when He roars. Then His Son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria, and I will let them dwell in the houses, says the Lord. So we have this poem of this loving father, and it's incredible what he's doing for the son. He is not a father that is absent in his life. He says that I, I helped him to walk and I fed him and I wrapped gentle, loving arms around him. I, I removed his yoke, his burdens off of him. He was doing everything that he could to provide and love this son like no one can love a son. He's doing everything he can. And what's the son do? He repays him with evil. He rebels against him. And I want us to see that this has an effect on God. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 6, the first effect that we see is it makes him angry. He is filled with anger. He says, He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to repent. The sword shall slash, devour his cities, consume him. He's saying, there, I'm going to do something about this. There is judgment coming your way. But then notice in verse 8. How can I give you up? Do you see what's happening here to the very God that has brought them out of Egypt that has done so many good things for them and they're rebelling against Him and we're here with, with the thought that we should be having going, why would you do this? Why would you even care? What's God thinking during all this? He's heartbroken. And He's torn. He says, I'm filled with anger and at the same time I'm filled with love for my Son. And I... I, I feel like I need to do something, but I want to redeem. I want to renew. That's the picture that we see. That's where they've driven God. That's where our sin drives God. Don't think that it doesn't have an effect. Don't think that it doesn't bother Him. We have to remember the heartbroken God does ultimately allow Assyria to conquer them. But not, not as an end of the picture sort of way. These won't be His final words. There is still hope, and that hope comes in chapter 14. And this hope for the future. There He says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips." Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our God, for you, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. I will be like the dew of Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under His shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard and observed Him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in Me. I want to stop right there. So what we see is Hosea calling them to repentance. He calls them to repentance and calls them to, to say, We're not going to trust in Assyria. We're not going to build idols anymore. Wow. 
We're not going to do these things. That's not going to define us as being a rebellious son anymore. And even though He calls them to do that, we see in His attitude, He doesn't expect them to actually do that. Why? Because some things never change. He's already illustrated that. You've always been this people. You're going to continue to be. And so they're going to face consequences. Assyria is going to come in. That's going to happen. But did you see what He said in verse 4? 14.4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. God says, I have a purpose. And it's not that I just want to create a new people. I want to fix this one. I see the problems. I see the problems in your life. I see the problems that you're suffering with, the problems that you won't bring to me, the problems that you're trying to take to the other nations, they're trying to solve in your own ways. I see them, and I see your sin. I see all of it, and I want to fix it. And he says, you know what it looks like when I fix it? It looks like a tree with deep roots. It looks like a tree with wide branches. It looks like a tree that has grown into maturity and it's beautiful and it offers a blessing not only to itself, but to everything around it. This is a call back to God's promise that He made to Abraham. Saying, I'm going to provide for you, your nation, your your offspring, I'm going to provide for this nation, and I'm going to provide for all nations through your descendants. And so God is saying, I've made a promise I've made a promise, and for that promise to be kept, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to show an act of grace, and I'm going to have to show an act of healing power to fix the broken, selfish, sinful hearts of mankind. And the conclusion of this poem in verse 8 shows a people who have felt the love of God, a people who have had God come into their lives and and show His healing and show His mercy and show His compassion to them, they in turn give God their love back. What have I to do with idols? The last part of verse 8. I have heard and I have observed Him. His fruit is in me. Maybe that's the question that we should take from the end of the book of Hosea in our own lives. Have I heard and have I observed Him? Is His fruit in me? Jesus came into this world. And He came into a world as a direct fulfillment of much of what we've just talked about and prophesied and seen prophesied in this book. He has planted the seed of the church, which He describes in His own teachings as growing into a mature tree, which provides shade and rest to the weary souls of the world. And so what we find Jesus doing is saying in His day, the story of Hosea still applies. It's still important for you to know. And we need to have a true knowledge, a relational knowledge of who God is, what He has done, and allow that knowledge to totally transform our lives. Transform our worship transform our thoughts, our actions. And I want to end by reading the very last verse of the book. Verse 9, Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble over them. 
Hosea is an old book. It is written to a different people at a different time, many, many hundreds of years before us. But it is not some sort of archaeological artifact. It is the living, breathing Word of God that has the ability to pierce to the joint and marrow of our souls. And in reading it today, one thing that I hope has been revealed to us is the God that we serve and His character illustrate His love for us, illustrate His desire to heal us, and illustrate His commitment to holiness, even in bringing His wrath upon us. It reminds us that, the, that, that God should and will bring justice upon the, the evil that human commits. But His ultimate goal is to save. His ultimate goal is to heal. And my question for you this morning is, would you be a part of that people? Would you be a part of the people who have been healed by God? A part of the people who have entered into a covenant with Him to belong to Him? And if you are today, are you a little bit like Israel, trying to look at the world around you and try to solve all of our problems by mimicking their actions? God sees us, and God can fix us. If only we will come to Him in obedience. If we can help you with that this morning, won't you please let it be known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.